Hey, thanks for listening to the Voice of Sovereign Grace. This podcast is a ministry of Grace Church in Harrisburg, North Carolina. You can check us out on the web at graceharrisburg.org. Well, last week we defined worship. We looked at the primary Hebrew and Greek words for worship in the Bible and realized that our definition must include both homage and obedience, reverence and service. Uh, We looked at both Old and New Testaments and learned that worship is internal. It happens in the heart, the spirit of man, Uh, but it's also external. It's expressed publicly, corporately, visibly. We learned that we are to worship in truth. We're to be people of integrity in our worship. We're to worship according to the directives of Scripture. We discussed several misunderstandings that are often applied to the term worship. Uh, Worship is not the preliminaries before a sermon. It's not music. It is an emotionalism. Uh, It's not just a matter of attending a Sunday service. Worship is not evangelism, and it isn't self-expression. So several things that worship is not, although we commonly uh, misunderstand worship to be these things. We then came up with a definition of our own. Uh, My working definition for worship is this. Worship is the process through which the believer that's private worship, or the church, which would be public worship, in response to the self-revelation of God and in accordance with the commandments and principles of Scripture, demonstrates the beauty and worth of God through acts of praise, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and obedience. And then finally, we talked about different categories in which our discussion of worship will inevitably take place. There's the all-of-life aspect of worship, And there's the idea of worship within specific contexts, corporately in the church, uh, family worship in the home, and private worship, worship of the individual before God. And we acknowledge that not all of the biblical principles that relate to worship will equally apply to these various contexts or categories of worship. Well, the next question I want to consider is this, how important is worship? How important is this matter of worship? What level of priority should we assign to this activity. Let's think about several scriptures first. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Jesus uh, says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Jesus is very explicit about which commandment in the law is the greatest, the preeminent command, and it is to love God with everything you have. You know, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 could serve as our definition of worship. Worship is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. According to Jesus, worship is given the highest priority um, possible. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 is another verse that highlights the priority of worship. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That phrase, to the glory of God, I think is often a religious cliche that has no meaning. We throw it around a lot, but we don't understand what it means. Uh, We know that we're supposed to live life for the glory of God, but what does it mean to glory uh, in the Lord, to give Him glory? If you look up the word glory in a Greek dictionary, you'll find that it's the word doxa. This Greek word means radiance, brightness, splendor. Weight, weightiness, majesty, fame, renown, prestige. So when we speak of glorifying God, we mean that we're attributing to God the honor, the prestige, the fame that is due him. We could paraphrase 1 Corinthians 10, 31 like this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all in such a way 
as to attribute to God all the splendor and majesty and prestige that belongs to him. Do it in such a way as to show off God. When we talk about worship, are we not talking about glorifying God? And Paul says that whatever we do, we're to do it in such a way as to bring glory to God. Or to put it another way, worship is to permeate all of life. So Paul, just like Jesus, puts a very high priority on worship. Romans eleven thirty six is another passage that addresses the priority of worship. Paul again says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now don't miss the significance of the prepositions in this sentence. Of him points to God as the source of all things. Through him points to God as the means through which all things are accomplished. And to him, this is the one that specifically concerns worship, to him points to God as the goal of all things. The purpose for which all things have been created is to bring glory to God. So again, Paul affirms that it's all about God. Creation exists for his glory. One more verse on the priority of worship, Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And why is he worthy to receive these things? Because you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. By virtue of the fact that God has created all things, by his own will and for his own pleasure, we exist then to give him glory and honor and power. Folks, there are a lot of important things we're to be doing as Christians, but worship is by far at the top of the list. There's no doubt in my mind that the Westminster divines were spot on when they answered the question, what is the chief end of man? Like this, they said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created above all else to worship God. How important is worship? It is of first importance. It really doesn't matter how successful you are in business if you fail in your worship of God. It doesn't matter how well your children succeed academically or athletically if they fail in their worship of God. It doesn't really matter what kind of uh, programs our church offers or how large our budget is or how fast we grow numerically if we fail in our worship of God. The preeminent activity of our lives, our ultimate aim, our chief end is worship. Now, why is it so critical that we understand the primacy of worship? It's important because whatever we view as our chief end will set the trajectory of everything else in our lives. Let me say that again because it's, it's so critical that we understand this. Whatever we view as our chief end in life will set the trajectory of everything else in our life. Let me ask you a question. What is the chief end of dieting. What is the, the main purpose, the ultimate goal of dieting? The chief end of dieting ought to be a healthy body. Uh, we may be tempted to say, well, it's weight loss or it's physical appearance. But if, if we make weight loss or physical appearance the chief end, there are plenty of unhealthy ways to lose weight. You might lose weight but die of high cholesterol. It, it's so easy for us to confuse the means with the end, but a wrong chief end can bring very harmful results. Let's, let's just take a few moments and think about the concept of a chief end. Um, let's clarify exactly what we mean by that term. If our, if our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, or to say it in shorthand, our chief end is to worship God, then to fully recognize the importance of worship 
we must understand what we mean by chief end. Now, bear with me here because my, my goal is for us to um, walk out of here uh, this morning with a full awareness of the weightiness and importance of worship. We've got to understand the importance of worship in our Christian walk because whatever we view as a chief end will set the trajectory of everything else in our lives. What do we mean by chief end? The best explanation of, of this idea of a chief end that I found is in a piece that Jonathan Edwards wrote called The End for Which God Created the World. The End for Which God Created the World. Several years ago, I picked up a book in a Christian bookstore just because the title intrigued me. The book was called God's Passion for His Glory. Now, at the time, I really didn't know much about John Piper or Jonathan Edwards for that matter, but this was a two-part book. The first half was written by John Piper, and it was explaining the importance and influence of Jonathan Edwards' theology. Then the second part of the book was the complete text of Edwards' treatise, The End for Which God Created the World. And it had a lot of footnotes from Piper explaining what Edwards was saying. probably took me nine months to get through this book, but when I finished it, it had so altered my thinking and philosophy of ministry that to this day, whenever I open the book and, and just read a little snippet of it, I realize how much it's shaped my worldview, my theology. It's well worth uh, the investment of time and energy to digest this book. I want us to look at how Edwards explains the idea of a chief end in his, in his treatise. First, he distinguishes between a chief end and an ultimate end, and a subordinate end. Okay, so three three distinctions, chief end, ultimate end, and subordinate end. A subordinate end, Edward says, is something that we aim at on account of a further end. It, it's a means to an end. Uh, my kids recently went to the dentist to have their teeth cleaned. Going to the dentist for a teeth cleaning was a subordinate end. They didn't go to the dentist for the sheer joy of the experience. Going to the dentist was a means to an end. And, of course, that end is healthy teeth. An ultimate end is that which we seek for its own sake, that which we love, value, or take pleasure in on its own account. An ultimate end is never a means to an end. It's an end in and of itself. I used to own a convertible, and on a sunny day when the temperature was right, I would put the top down on my car. I didn't put the top down for any other reason than that I enjoy riding with the top down. It didn't accomplish anything besides making me happy. It was an ultimate end. Now, an ultimate end for one person may be a subordinate end for somebody else. So, for example, uh, some of my kids love to play chutes and ladders. I don't particularly like that game, but I enjoy being with my kids. I enjoy watching them have a good time. So playing shoots and ladders for them is an ultimate end. They're playing it for the sheer joy of the game. But for me, it's a subordinate end. I'm playing it not for the enjoyment of the game, but for the enjoyment of being with my kids. All right, so we understand, hopefully, the difference between a subordinate end and an ultimate end. Edwards then explains the term chief end. He says uh, that a chief end is the ultimate end that is most valued and most sought after in what we do. Of the two ultimate ends I've mentioned, uh, riding in a convertible and spending time with my kids, the chief end, the thing I would value the most of those two, is spending time with my kids. So when the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? It's asking this, among all the things that man loves and values and takes pleasure in on its own account, those things that are ends in and of themselves, 
What is the one thing that ought to be most valued, most loved, and most sought after? And the answer is the glory and enjoyment of God. Worship is the end of all ends, the aim of all aims, the joy of all joys. It's the very purpose and fulfillment of our existence. So what happens when we make something else our chief end? Well, we have an example of this very thing in Acts 8, verses 18 through 24. You'll remember the story of Simon the sorcerer. He had amazed people with his powers. Then one day, Philip arrived in town and began evangelizing the Samaritans. They began to get converted. Uh, The apostles eventually came to Samaria to lay hands on these new converts, and they received the Holy Spirit. Then here's what Simon the sorcerer did. Acts 8, beginning at verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Evidently, Simon was viewing the Holy Spirit as a means to an end. Whether that end was fame or wealth, we don't know, but Peter sharply rebukes him. We see the same kind of thing illustrated in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. You remember the story. This couple sold some property, gave a portion of the proceeds to the church, but they claimed to have given all of the proceeds. And as a result of their lie, they're struck down dead. Their act of worship, in this case the the giving of a financial gift for the work of the church, had been a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. They gave to advance their own reputation. They performed an act of worship in order to exalt themselves. Worship for them had become a means to some other end. It is so easy for us to confuse the means with the end. I grew up in a church that didn't hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith or any confession of faith, but I can tell you how they would have answered the question, what is man's chief end? They would have said, man's chief end is to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Evangelism is what my home church, and, and I think many churches in our day, identify as man's chief end. Now, don't get me wrong. Evangelism is a good thing, and if we're not evangelizing, we're in rebellion against God. But evangelism is merely a means to an end. We're talking about how whatever we identify as our chief end will set the trajectory of everything else we do. So what happens when we make evangelism our chief end? Everything else becomes a means to the end of evangelism, including worship. And we see this played out in American Christianity, don't we? When the goal of glorifying and enjoying God is made subservient to the goal of winning converts, it's reflected in our actions and words and thinking. Listen to what Kent Hughes said about the shift from God-centeredness to man-centeredness in worship. He said, there's an intrinsic downward gravity in human-centered worship. Among the greatest dangers is pragmatism, because where pragmatism becomes the conductor, the audience increasingly becomes humans rather than God. And when humanity is played to first, 
when what humanity wants becomes the determining factor, it will corrupt not only worship, but theology. When we meet for corporate worship, we must consciously begin with the question, how must we conduct our lives and shape our meeting so as to glorify God? By insisting that corporate worship must be radically God-centered, I am not in any way suggesting a disregard for humankind and the lost world, but rather, I insist that the proper approach to worship must first be God-focused and then human-sensitive. Only when the question of God's glory and pleasure is addressed can the second question regarding humanity be pressed. Again, my concern is that the second question is the dominant force today in many circles, and that this has a pernicious effect. A persistent focus on humanity could lead to a post-Christian, human-centered evangelicalism. Certainly, the church must be culturally attuned and sensitive, but the ultimate question must be, what does God think of the way we worship Him? So let me, let me summarize. We've seen from several scripture passages and from our own confession of faith that the highest activity, the chief end, the main event in the Christian life is worship. It's bringing glory to God, attributing to Him all of the splendor and majesty and fame and renown that is due Him. We've seen that when we confuse a subordinate end with a chief end, we change the trajectory of our lives with devastating results. We saw this in the case of Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. We saw it in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. We see it played out all around us today whenever man takes center stage in the church over and above God. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do I make glorifying and enjoying God my chief end in all things? We all know the answer to the catechism question. We all know how important loving and worshiping God is, but do we do it? Do I wake up in the morning asking myself, how can I glorify God and enjoy Him today? Do I turn on the TV and think, what can I watch that will help me glorify God better and enjoy Him more? Now, I'm not saying go home and make a resolution to only listen to BBN radio or to only watch Charles Stanley reruns on TV and never watch anything quote-unquote, secular. I'm not saying don't imbibe media that isn't explicitly Christian. I'm saying that whatever media you do imbibe, do it in a Christian way, in a way that consciously keeps God at the center, not in a way that puts your Christian worldview on the shelf. In fact, one can even listen to and watch and read explicitly Christian media in a very non-Christian way. My point is, it's not just the medium, it's our heart's response to the medium that's at stake. I think it's it's the old Puritan concept of imago dei, everything we do, even the non-explicitly religious stuff, we do in the presence of God with a conscious awareness of His watching us and with a conscious pursuit of grounding every pleasure and appetite we experience in Him. It isn't a denying of pleasure and appetites, unless, of course, they're sinful, but it's rather an enlisting of our pleasures and appetites in the service of heightening our enjoyment of God. You know, it might be profitable to to go home and spend some time today thinking through uh, the activities that make up a typical week in your life and ask yourself, how can I do blank in a way that explicitly brings glory to God and consciously heightens my enjoyment of Him. To my shame, I would have to admit 
that my money and my time and my thought life and how I use my eyes and how I use my mouth and what I listen to and what I indulge in reflects how me-centered I really am. And what is that? What is that me-centeredness? It's self-worship, is it not? How very much like Lucifer I am. I want to be the object of worship. I want everyone to glorify me and enjoy me. Folks, if left to ourselves, we will worship ourselves. I fully believe that if there's a problem with man-centeredness in corporate worship, it's most likely because there's a problem with man-centeredness in private worship. You see, man-centeredness in worship is not primarily an ecclesiastical problem. It's not a church problem or a musical problem or a problem of form and style. Man-centeredness in worship is primarily a heart problem. And it's a heart problem that we all have. Do you see what's at stake? We're not studying this topic of worship in order to become better Presbyterians. We're studying worship because it is of primary importance. It is the very reason we exist. It is the purpose for which we're on this planet. We're studying what the Bible has to say about worship. Because at the heart of what it means to be a sinner is compulsion to worship myself instead of my creator. If worship is this central to life, and at the same time this resisted by my sinful flesh, then it stands to reason, doesn't it, that this is the arena in which the battle will be the most intense. This is where the world, the flesh, and the devil will fight most vehemently. Worship is so central to the purpose of life that everything I do, going to school, filing my taxes, cleaning my house, watching a movie, even going to church, has the potential to be an act of worship toward God or an act of disdain of God. Worship is at the center of everything we are and everything we do. It's that important. So if worship is that important, does God care how it is done? If worship is so foundational to an obedient Christian life, And if the Bible contains everything we need to be equipped for every good work, then shouldn't we expect the Bible to contain sufficient instruction for us concerning worship? Shouldn't we expect to find thorough teaching in the area of worship? Does God care how we worship? That's the question we're going to take up next time. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you're ever in the Charlotte area and would like to visit Grace Church, we'd love to meet you. We're located in Harrisburg, North Carolina, and we worship every Sunday morning at 1030 and every Sunday night at 6 o'clock. For more information, visit graceharrisburg.org. 